This is episode number 334, The Ultra Mindset with endurance athlete and coach Travis Macy. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. I mean, it's really a case like that, you know, there's lightning up high and you're taking shelter to get down through a boulder field. Like you're, it's probably not good physiological training to help you prepare for your next bike race. And, and in fact, you might get hurt and hit your knee sliding on ice or, or whatever. But what it is, it's, it's, it's mental training, it's psychological training. And I think of it as the idea that when you're going through something hard, it, it is hard, and I'm not saying that everything is good by any means, because tough stuff happens and life is not fair. But if you can simultaneously embrace the opposing ideas that this is hard and bad and sad and tough, but it's also helping me fill this, uh, I think of it as a well of resilience that I can then draw from when other hard things happen, which they do, because they will, and it, they will happen in the sports we do, they will happen in parenting and relationships and health, uh, finances, whatever, you know, these things will happen. And and if you can think of it in terms of I'm, I'm preparing ahead to be more resilient later on, I think that can really help. Travis Macy is a professional endurance athlete, having finished over 130 ultra endurance events in 17 countries. He's an author, a coach, and a speaker. He's the author of the book, The Ultra Mindset, an endurance champion's eight core principles for success in business, sports, and life, and also has a new book coming out in March called A Mile in Time that he will be returning to the show to talk about. Travis is like my soul brother. We love all of the same things, and we are passionate about many of the same topics, especially when it comes to the inner game of being an endurance athlete. Travis's racing resume includes mountain bike races, road runs, adventure racing, snowshoeing, skiing, kayaking, and so much more. His writing has been published across several publications, including Ultra Running Magazine, Backpacker Magazine, and Trail Runner Magazine. In addition to being a sponsored athlete, writer, and dad, he is also a coach and founded a successful education consulting firm called Macy College Consulting with his wife and works with businesses, executives, and adult endurance athletes. And before we get into the key takeaways, I wanted to tell you about our podcast sponsor, Prevenex. Given that we're talking about endurance sports, you may have experienced some joint pain over your life as an endurance athlete. I know I certainly have. Something that I'm paying really close attention to right now is my joint health, particularly because I've taken up ultra running this year. I'm going to be doing a 50 kilometer ultra running race in May and a 40 mile ultra running race in September. So thinking about my joints is really important. And that's why I was so excited to learn about Joint Health Plus from Prevenix. And the main active ingredient in Joint Health Plus is clinically proven to reduce joint pain, reduce joint stiffness, and improve joint flexibility in 7 to 10 days. That's pretty quickly. And also protect joint cartilage from breakdown during exercise. So Joint Health Plus is a key player in my preparation for these ultra-endurance events and also for my longevity as an athlete. 
Here's something that might shock you a little bit. The main active ingredient comes from the membrane of an eggshell, and that's not vegan. And I went back and forth as to whether I should try Joint Health Plus because I eat a plant-based diet. But the clinical data and the testimonials I've seen were too compelling, and I had to give it a try. And I'm glad that I did. I'm running 35 to 40 miles on trails every single week, and I'm not having any joint problems. And I'm so grateful that I have Joint Health Plus as one of the key players to keep me healthy. If you want to give it a try too, you can go to Prevenex.com, that is P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and use the code SONYA15, that is S-O-N-Y-A-15, at checkout to get 15% off your first order. And while you're at it, add the multivitamin to your cart because that is also a game changer. There are many key takeaways from today's podcast, but some of them to be on the lookout for are how to embrace every aspect of training, including mental training, how to define success and what is good enough, because sometimes we never feel like we are good enough. And that is something that I personally struggle with. Who you are as a competitor, even if you're not standing on podiums, We talked about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation and how extrinsic motivation isn't always a bad thing. And we talked about addressing the negative stories that you tell yourself and a lot more. If you're interested in the mental side of sport, I have a course called the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy that you can find at sonyalooney.com or moxieandgrit.com and that is M-O-X-Y and grit.com. And it's all about how to train your mind as an athlete, dealing with things like confidence, how to set proper goals, different types of breath work you can use, when intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is appropriate, and so much more. And you have several hours of video course that you get to watch at your own pace and a workbook that's included. So again, you can find that at sonyalooney.com or at moxieandgrit.com. If you're on sonyalooney.com, make sure you click on the How I Can Help banner and the course will be under that. Okay, let's get into this great podcast with Travis and make sure to pick up his book, The Ultra Mindset. Travis, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Sonia. Awesome to be here and to be here with your audience. I am an active listener of your show and I'm just pumped to get to play a role. Yeah, and your podcast is awesome. And I was a guest on your show last year. So thanks. And we'll make sure that we put that in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So it's so funny. You and I have such similar passions and you've done a lot of really interesting adventure races and also a lot of mountain bike races. Just you're an endurance athlete around the world. So I guess the first thing I want to ask is kind of a hard question. What is your favorite story to tell from your your racing escapades? (laughs) Oh, man. Favorite story. I you know, I don't know if there is one. I, I guess uh, the first thing that comes to mind is just gratitude for having been able to have some fun adventures, you know, ups, downs, failures, successes all over the world. You know, I mean, the last couple of years, I've been telling some stories about this uh, pack burrow racing thing that we have here in Colorado, where you do basically a high altitude trail run with a donkey on a leash. And, uh, you know, <laughs> those those stories, they're just, they're funny, they're quirky, they're, you know, just good stories, you know, stuff from uh, the early days, you know, you and I are about the same age, and we both started doing some of these longer, challenging races, kind of right out of college. So there's stories from that era. And, you know, maybe really at the top of my list, is a race that was a lot less 
competitive, but more just fun and family and kind of a higher meaning. And that was the the last eco challenge that that I did with my dad. It's now three years ago that we were in that race in in Fiji, and some folks might have seen that on on Amazon. But that just on so many levels was an, an incredible experience and. And really what stands out to me just uh, thinking about it is the the Fijian people and their their energy, their spirit. They they have this bula spirit. Bula 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 and it's it's kind of like uh you know the aloha spirit of Hawaii or pura vida in Costa Rica. And these are like cultural things that are very real and just part of again part of society and part of how people treat each other. And that that was just so special getting to spend time with the Fijians and get to sleep in their houses during the races. And it like, it gave me hope for humanity. You know, that was just before the pandemic. So kind of on the tail of that, the, you know, here comes the pandemic along and just all kinds of stuff going on where maybe people weren't treating each other well, or, you know, poor international relations, you know, the, the U S president at the time, et cetera. And, and it was just, uh, well, I guess it wouldn't have been. No, when did okay the previous U.S. president? Let's put it that way. But yeah, anyway, it gave me faith in humanity. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Something so special about traveling, especially traveling internationally, is getting to experience the different vibes and the different culture and places around the world. And that has been one of my favorite things about international racing. And I especially like going to underdeveloped areas because mm-hmm. it seems like that spirit is even more pronounced. How have you yeah. taken that idea of of having a pronounced spirit of some kind and apply that to your parenting? Ooh, boy, there's a that's a good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I was the the Fiji experience. I was really lucky that my kids got to go, so they were they weren't on the race course. They they did get to visit a couple of villages after the race. Actually, uh, my wife Amy found on Airbnb this kind of it was like a homestay sort of thing where you take a boat out to this teeny little island and, you know, basically stay with a a family for a few days. So, uh, you know, that obviously for my kids coming from Colorado was a much different lifestyle and from the house to what we ate and everything. So they, they got to see some of that. And I would say, you know, for some number of months, just kind of it would come up naturally. We'd talk about the Fijians and Bula and and all that sort of stuff. Boy, how have I been able to do it since then? I don't know. I think maybe it's just a good reminder to think about that. To you know, ask yourself what would what would the Fijians do, or or when I'm mm-hmm. getting stressed about something, you know, falling apart on my house or or whatever. Um, being thankful, for example, to have running water to mm-hmm. or to have uh, hot water. Yeah, it sounds like that openness piece is also really important. Like you took them there and they had to they had to open their mind to a new experience. Yeah. Yeah. And they did. They you know, they were they were on all on board. I mean, that was it was one of the best family trips ever. And and they, you know, they also enjoyed like while we were finishing the race, all the families, and there were many families and friends from different teams came. They all stayed at like a five-star resort and you know, that's fun as well because you have lots of good food in a pool and that kind of stuff. But uh, I would say more than the five-star resort, I bet they will remember that homestay experience over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I heard you say when you first started talking about um, when I asked you what's a memorable experience, you said 
gratitude first. Mm -hmm. And then you also talked about embracing the ups and the downs. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of times when people think about, you know, what's a cool story or what's something that I've done in my life, they might not consider the downs as something to be grateful for. And, you know, mindset is a huge part of what you like talking about. I mean, you've been talking about this for a very long time. When did you start learning that it's important to um, to embrace the challenges and not avoid them, not push those emotions away and to mm-hmm. embrace them as part of what you're doing? Yeah, for me, it kind of came organically early on. And a lot of it was, was probably just through uh, osmosis from my dad, who is an endurance athlete. And I talk about that in the Ultra Mindset book. You know, he was Definitely wasn't pushing any of these sports on me, but I was just around and out there crewing or hanging out or, you know, throwing rocks or whatever at the Leadville 100 or the Badwater Ultra Marathon or watching the Eco Challenge on TV, you know, when I was a a kid and a teenager Mm -hmm. in the 90s. So some of that stuff just kind of seeped through, you know, my dad uh, would have you know, fun little, little mantras, uh, uh, you know, keep hammering or it's all good mental training, uh, those kind of things. So I think I, you know, maybe had, um, a bit of that idea, but I would also say, you know, especially as a teenager and a young adult, I was very perfectionistic when it came to academics and also to sports to some degree, uh, maybe less for sports. Cause the good thing about sports is, it forces you to fail. And if you've been an athlete for a long time, whether it's team sports or individual sports, just losing is unavoidable. You're going to have a lot of that. With academics, there is a chance, you know, you could go all the way through high school or college or grad school or whatever, and, you know, have few failures or low scores or that kind of stuff. So I think in that area, it took me a little more time to embrace, like, everything doesn't have to be perfect you know, perfection is not as important as progress. Um, those kind of things. Uh, I think I heard you say on a podcast, Sonia, someone told you, or maybe you made it up. It was like, sometimes done is better than perfect. I, I like that one. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a process, you know, and even, even the, the failures, the good thing about sports failures, when you talk about stories, often those become the best stories, whether it's, <laughs> the humor or just the feeling of it, like in the moment, you know, you're like, I put so much into this and it hasn't worked out. And, you know, I wanted to win or the prize money or whatever. And like, you know, it's the exact opposite of that. But over time, you usually realize, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. I'm still the same person, you know, had I won or gotten the prize money, it wouldn't have changed my life. You know, now I've lost and not gotten the prize money or whatever that hasn't changed my life either and and now I do have some some good stories and and good team oriented stories often with with other people as well. Yeah, that's a really cool thing. Like I've actually never done an adventure race and the team aspect of adventure racing I'm sure adds such an interesting dynamic to the storytelling and just to getting through the experience. Mhm. Yeah, I think you would like it. I mean, it it really does add just a whole new level uh that I love. You know, I think life is a team sport and in life, we all have chances to lead, to follow, to provide help, to ask for help. And that is exactly what you do in an adventure race. In your book. So what we'll kind of dive in and out of your book as we chat the ultra mindset. One of the pillars in there is that everything is mental training. And I love this because 
years ago, a friend of mine, we used to travel together, do tons of races together. His name's Jeff Kirkov and he lives nearby you actually now. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know yeah. Jeff, not too well, but yeah, we've, we've definitely, you know, raced <laughs> against each other in some of the mountain bike races and stuff. And whenever you see, I don't know if he still drives the, what is it? The, the Topeak Ergon yeah. van, you know? Oh yeah, there's Jeff. Yeah, he does. <laughs> um, so something that he would always say that we thought was, it was all, it was kind of a joke to each other, but it was, there was actually truth in that is when something really bad would happen while we're traveling or, you know, something mm-hmm. goes totally wrong and you're running down the side of a mountain because with your bike, cause there's lightning or whatever <laughs> yeah. it is, yep. he would say, everything is training. And we would kind of laugh about it. And yeah, you talk about that in your book. So can you, can you talk about that pillar and how important it is to embrace everything as training? Yeah. I mean, it's really a case like that, you know, there's lightning up high and you're taking shelter to get down through a boulder field. Like you're, it's probably not good physiological training to help you prepare for your next bike race. And and in fact, you might get hurt and hit your knees sliding on ice or or whatever, but what it is, it's, it's, it's mental training, it's psychological training. And I think of it as the idea that when you're going through something hard, it, it is hard. And I'm not saying that everything is good by any means, because tough stuff happens and life is not fair. But if you can simultaneously embrace the opposing ideas that this is hard and bad and sad and tough, it's also helping me fill this, uh, I think of it as a well of resilience that I can then draw from when other hard things happen, which they do because they will. And it, they will happen in the sports we do. They will happen in parenting and relationships and health, uh, finances, whatever. You know, These things will happen. And, and if you can think of it in terms of I'm, I'm preparing ahead to be more, more resilient later on, I think that can really help. Yeah, it's really optimistic because you can say in the moment, like, this really sucks. And this, you know, I don't like mm-hmm. this and I don't want this to be happening. However, in the future, the future me is going to be more resilient because of this thing. So there is still good to be had from this thing, even though this thing really sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's different levels, like everything's on a spectrum. You know, you can be having the shitty run or the shitty ride, or, you know, you went out ski touring and it's just the worst conditions ever and you're freezing and it's just miserable, but it's going to be over in a couple hours. You know, that's, that's great mental training, like for your upcoming race or uh, whatever. Then there, there really are the super hard things in life that are bad. They're not fair. And those kind of things, you know, I'm not trying to like sugarcoat that, oh, everything happens is, is good, but maybe there is, you know, some positive to be found, you know, as I think about my own experience with depression over the years, I mean, it's, it's bad, like, you know, it's not a good thing to experience. And I've also realized that whether it's friends or clients or people I know, maybe I'm a little better prepared to support someone else who experiences something similar. Yeah. Thanks for being open about that, by the way. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you've drawn so much inspiration from your dad in your book. It's really apparent. Well, one of your books, it's your first book is really apparent. There's pictures of you, you know, with, with your dad and like you mentioned, seeing him as you were, as you were younger. And then your second book, which we're going to be recording a podcast about is, you know, racing with your dad and, and doing things with your dad. And he has now, he now has Alzheimer's and that's something like you said, life isn't fair. That's another mm-hmm. example of that. Yes. How are you, how are you managing that part? Sonia, it's a good question. I'd say o- overall pretty well. We, we have a good, you know, my dad's an incredible guy. He's positive. Mm-hmm. He is great at finding 
happiness where other people might not. And that's that's very much true. And and my mom is incredible and resilient and just super attentive to him and to continuing to make the most of of things, you know. And like I said, it's it's hard. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really it's really hard and sad to see someone lose cognitive capabilities, physical capabilities, communication capabilities, the unknown, the uncertainty is, is very hard. And there's a lot of things in life that are are like that. And I've really, my own sort of mental training, you know, over the last Mm -hmm. few years has kind of been focused on that. How do I embrace the uncertainty as, as mm-hmm. well as I can. And, mm-hmm. you know, overall I am doing pretty good mm-hmm. and I have bad days with it, tough days mm-hmm. with it, days where like, man, where does this go? Or I kind of, I find my brain, um, you know, scrambling ahead from the present to future hypotheticals and how mm-hmm. can I control this? How can I mitigate this? How can I, you know, most of all, like, I don't want my dad to suffer and, mm-hmm. You know, there's some obviously sadness and suffering now, but it's it's bearable. Mm-hmm. I hope things stay that way. And and I don't know. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of uncertainty. So, yeah, you know, generally I think I'm at a pretty good spot. I talk in, in that new book about like the first six months after the diagnosis or six months or so were really, really hard. A lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of that how can I control this? What can I do? How can I fix it? You know, immediately let's take care of finances and living and, you know, Mm -hmm. all this stuff at once that in hindsight was like kind of, you know, an effort to uncontrol or to control the uncontrollable I've realized. And then, you know, doing, doing that race in Fiji, it kind of felt like a rite of passage sort of, and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, whether I, whether it was that way, just because I like imagine it that way, or because that's the story I tell myself, but but it was, and I feel like after doing that, I was more ready to take on a new role as an adult child than I was before, and and I think my dad was a little bit more ready to accept a role of accepting help, you know, which is a very hard thing for a lot of people to do. Yeah, that's so much awareness on your part to be to say, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of things out of my control. And I was just doing everything I could trying to take action, trying to control something that I can't control. And I know that a lot of people listening have probably felt that way. I mean, Mm -hmm. with various things in their lives, but there's so many things that we that we don't know the future and we don't know what's going to happen. And it's really hard because we'll start doing anything. We'll we'll get on the Internet and start researching something that I, I tend to do that researching my myself into an oblivion, trying to feel like yeah. I'm doing something for something you can't do anything about. And um, yeah. being You're able not to, the only one, Sonia. Yeah, and then this goes back to what we were talking about <laughs> earlier of just being able to like take on those challenging emotions. I don't even want to label them as negative because mm-hmm. I think that that makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy. But yeah, just having the mental tools or the mental skills to just say, okay, like I'm just going to sit in this right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and it was hard, and and it is hard, and it will be hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the acceptance yeah. piece is so so important there. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not spe- I don't know what that's like, and I'm sure that some of the listeners do though. Yeah, no, I'm sure yeah. they do, and uh, yeah, I mean, whether it's Alzheimer's, of course, like more and more people are being diagnosed, and and, and that's not all bad either. Early diagnosis identification, we're now learning. There's a lot that can be done. The old story was no treatment, no cure. And and now we've got 
new drugs, so much knowledge of lifestyle, sleep, you know, food, exercise, all these things mm-hmm. can make a difference. And my message to someone out there who's thinking, oh, maybe I'm experiencing cognitive decline, or maybe my my friend or loved one is is address it early. This is a very hard, you know, it's a hard conversation to have. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I think having hard conversations in life is is a good thing because it's it's part of the deal, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna change gears a little bit, and you were talking about how you were a perfectionist when you were younger, and that's something that you've mm-hmm. had to work on. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I've been wondering if maybe it's a general a generational thing because mm. I I certainly you're, the story that you're telling I've definitely that's my story as well. There's a lot mm-hmm. of other people our age where I've heard them say yep. the exact same things, and I'm also wondering because your kid your kids are definitely older than my kids. I'm wondering yep. if the next, well, I guess it's many generations past when it was our generation, but the kids, <laughs> yeah. kids these days, you know, if, if they're still struggling with this perfectionist, you know, tendency, or if that was kind of a generational thing. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't think I'm qualified to speak on any of this <laughs> as an expert, but yeah. anecdotally, you know, you could say in in the, you know, the 80s and 90s, it was a lot of the self-esteem movement, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that often came about with the message of you can do anything and, uh, you know, everyone gets the ribbon and that kind of stuff. And so that I think could be argued and has been that that would lead people to have that achievement orientation and okay if i get the a plus then i feel good and you do that over and over especially in academics you know it becomes a a snowball right yeah and that's something i talked a bit about with steve magnus who i think was also on your yeah. podcast you know and his his new book touches on that a bit as well do hard things it's sitting on my desk my microphone is sitting on my copy of do hard things <laughs> um so yeah shout out to steve I, I mean as far as now yeah my kids are 9 and 11 they're kind of you know they're in this like tween stage like they are not little kids anymore and they'll both be in middle school uh next year already one is already there so you know it's a different phase is this stuff still around? I would say, yeah. And what's different, and again, this is not news to anyone, but the the screens and the social media. And I do think for a lot of kids that can lead to, you know, that, that sense of, oh, everyone else is looking great or, you know, has mm-hmm. the style or the body or the, you know, the fun or whatever it is, right? That's what social mm-hmm. media is. It's a highlight reel of everyone else. So I, I think as parents. And again, I don't have the exact answer, but, you know, we got to be really intentional about, you know, probably less of what our kids are exposed to because they're going to find their way to things, but maybe mitigating it and also just having those conversations, those ongoing conversations, you know, about that, you you know, self-image, self-concept, like Mm -hmm. what is it that we really see on social media making these things ongoing conversations, you know, just, just like I think a part of good parenting would be ongoing conversations about sexuality or decision-making or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. I love how in your book, you have these different pillars of the ultra mindset, but then you apply them to real life. You have the sport example, but this is how it applies to real life. And then I also loved how you applied it to parenting because I'm still pretty a pretty new parent, so I'm still mm-hmm. learning, and I'm sure I'll be learning forever. <laughs> yep, but I am yeah. too, Sonia. <laughs> but it they was really keep getting older, and so do we. But it's yeah. a moving target, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, something I actually wanted to ask you is it's another kind of broad question, but you've done a lot of different things in your life. You've had lots of successes in different sports and in different areas. Like you're you're a coach, you're a speaker, you're a podcaster, and we just talked about perfectionism. So how do you define what is successful or what is good enough? And I mean, mm. I'm asking mm-hmm. that, not saying that this is good enough and I never have to reach for more. But the question is, how do you feel good about what you're doing and say this is successful while I'm still reaching for more? Yeah, yeah. That's a really good question. And and I, I think a good first step, uh, I may have said this in the book, I, I can't remember. I feel like I said something like it is just the idea of you get to define what success is. And, and for a lot of people, that's a big step because uh, in the American culture, I know you, you live in Canada, you are American. I mean, there's probably... Canadian culture as well. But there's, you know, when we say success, like that is synonymous with like, oh, the person made a lot of money in Mm -hmm. this job. So I think a good first step is to just be able to say, well, it's up to you what success means. And you get to live your life and decide how you're going to define that. So that's a good first step. An idea that's come to me fairly recently from his name is escaping me. And every time I can't remember a name now, I wonder if I have Alzheimer's, uh, which is scary. But um, uh, William, gosh, he's the stoicism guy. He's written all these books about stoicism. And he was on our- Ryan Holiday or- It's not Holiday. He's more more academic. William something. It'll probably come to me later. But I did a podcast with him and he talked about the idea. I loved his terms for success was something along the lines of- identifying your own game and then playing it as well as you can. And Mm -hmm. I kind of like that of, you know, your own game. Does that mean your niche? Does it mean your job? Does it mean your, your Mm -hmm. view? Does it mean, you know, like, like for me right now, things that I've really been focused on are um, impact and experiences. You know, those are kind of maybe gauges that I can, you know, in some ways measure my success by. So can you talk more about impact and experiences? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Impact, like making a difference and and more and more like making a difference for as many people as I can. So in some ways that actually may ironically connect with something like, oh, how many followers do you have on Instagram? Like, you know, typically that's a very extrinsic kind of thing. Like, oh, you know, what's my number compared to someone else's number? How many of those people are actually and, paying attention or seeing the posts? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Who who knows? Who knows? But none of that is like my wheelhouse by any means. But you know, how can I make a difference for more people? I mean, that's really for me like something like writing a book. That's that's kind of my core motivation. And then the experiences. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for for me, more and more dynamic experiences. I've been thinking a lot about fun especially with sports and, and even my own role as an athlete, I, I still race some. Um, I, I have to admit, I went through a period that I think I'm out of where I had a lot of tough questions about my identity of if I'm not, you know, sort of standing on the podium or like going for the podium, you know, if my clear mission is not to win this race or that series or these races, then who am I? That was very challenging. And, and, Again, you know, I feel like I mostly moved beyond that. Currently, like I said, I'm enjoying focusing on on fun, you mm-hmm. know, and shifting from a story of like, 
I've set up my job as an athlete so that I can race for a living. And now I'm thinking more in the terms of, well, I've, you know, I've worked hard and I've gotten to a point where, where this, uh, these sports can be part of my job in addition to my coaching and podcasting and other things I do. And I can race or not race. And, and if I want to focus on fun or building skills, that's great too. So that's, that's been a good new thing for me, especially with skiing and mountain biking, focusing on skills, um, you know, less on, whereas in the past, it was all about how fast can you ride or ski up a hill and then kind of survive going down, you know, now I'm like, boy, it's actually fun to have a little more suspension and do like a fun, uh, like a, this weekend, I got lucky and got to go to the lunch loops in Grand Junction because my son had a soccer camp around there. And these are like some really fun techie trails. And there's one called Holy Cross. That's kind of a classic in there and, you know, really challenging. And I, I'm not at the point where I can like make it through without putting my foot down, but it's a fun thing to focus on just mm-hmm. getting better in that, those techniques. The thing that I love about skill-based adventures is that you either do it or you don't. It's not um, this nebulous thing of fitness where it's like, well, I might be 1% mm-hmm. faster. And especially when you've been racing for a long time. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of know because you can see numbers and those types of things, but it's not nearly as rewarding as looking at something that you wrote down or up and said, yeah, like I actually did that thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it the progress when someone's at a very high level at something, let's say at, like fitness, you know, cycling fitness, the growth is, is hard. You do a ton of work to gain another 1%. And with something where anyone is, you know, more of a beginner or intermediate level, um, the growth comes a lot faster and, and that's fun. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you've talked about the book called Mindset by, by Dweck, and that's all about the growth mindset. When you're focused on growth, you know, things are, things are usually better and it's fun. It's fun to be able to progress faster. Yeah. Something else that you said resonated with me a lot of, well, who am I if I'm not standing on top of podiums? And I've been thinking Mm -hmm. about that a lot lately because I'm still planning, you know, to race and to do as well as I can in races, but I have lots of other endeavors in my life that I'm equally passionate or maybe even more passionate about than being on the podium Mm -hmm. at races. And so I kind of have one foot in and one foot out of trying to decide how, you know, I have a very limited amount of time which is chosen because I want to spend more time with my kids and yep. less time, you know, before I was work like way more hours than probably anybody should. <laughs> yep. So the question I was asking myself is, you know, am I still, I, I like standing on the podium because I feel special mm-hmm. and that's like embarrassing to admit out loud to like people listening, but yeah, like you feel special when you're standing on a podium, you feel yeah. proud of your accomplishment, but there's also yep. this like, you know, people look at you like, wow. And they want to hear what you have to say because you sit on the podium yeah. So, you know, what does that mean if you're not on the podium? Are you are you still special? And does that even matter? And I don't know. I don't know if that's something that you thought about while you were going through this process. Absolutely. And and I wish you know uh, I wish like I had an answer because <laughs> because it's all this stuff is is a journey. And I I think for listeners, maybe you're a podium seeker in sports or maybe you're not, but there's similar things in other, you know, in the workplace. Or, yeah. It's the next know. promotion or the next, yeah. you know, bonus or, ret- or retiring well, from yeah. your job. Like if I'm not like whatever role I was yeah. anymore, then what am I? Yeah. Yeah. It's part of the human story. And I guess the, maybe the only, maybe one thing I've learned or something that I tell myself and tell other athletes is 
sometimes initially we think in terms of like black and white, either you're totally in and you're 300% into doing the, Mm -hmm. all these big mountain bike stage races, right. Which, you know, is probably an idea that you and I have both experienced or or you're totally out. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe if we think creatively, maybe there's an in-between or maybe there are, uh, seasons, you know, I, I know for me for, you know, probably the next, you know, let's call it 15 or 20 years after college. Like it was, man, it was full on athletics and racing all year round. (laughs) There were no seasons. It was like racing. When is the next race? There better be another race in the next month. And I've kind of realized like, uh, you know, maybe that worked for me then, but, but now that's not a good fit. And maybe there are seasons. So maybe there's a certain time of year where I could really get into something, you know, focus, maybe go for the Um, have some of that external drive for the podium, you know, whether it's to feel special or to feel accomplished or to feel growth, but then maybe there can be other seasons where something else is, is going on. Yeah. I think this ties really nicely into your book where you talked about using both extrinsic and intrinsic motivation because Mm -hmm. extrinsic motivation is demonized and I'm, I'm guilty of, you know, overemphasizing intrinsic motivation, but in your book, you talked about why and how both are important. So can you talk about that? Because I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, The way I put it in the book was basically just that if you're doing something really hard, and that was part of the message was that book was, you know, as Magnus says here, do hard things. You know, there's a value in, you know, setting a, uh, what do they call it? A reach goal or or something. That if you're doing something really hard, you're probably going to need both. You're probably going to need an activity or something that you generally enjoy or or at least enjoy some of it and you there's going to be times where it's not fun in the moment so excuse me you're going to need that that extrinsic piece branching ahead just to my my reading this weekend i was listening to an audiobook called uh, no bad parts which is hmm. this examination of a I'll call it a model or a framework called uh, internal family systems. And it's, you know, it's kind of a psychology model. I'm finding it interesting. But uh, one of the things that uh, book and that model says is like the ego is not a bad thing. Um, You know, these, these kind of parts of us that we might call the ego that are focused again, maybe on, on the podium or what do people think of us? How do we look that kind of stuff? The advice in, in this model is, don't just shove those under the table, but see them as as part of you. And how do they play a role uh, here or there? And also, how can we use them to um, best support like the true self? So we've got this true self that's maybe kind of separate from again the ego or these exiles or these other parts. You know, you can go way into the weeds on this, but how can we use those other parts of us to really support the self and self based leadership? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that applying that to parenting too, like you said, this is about, was it, this book is about families, like parenting and, or was it? Well, yeah, it could be. It's actually more of an uh, internal family systems. It's more of a focus on an individual person, Mm -hmm. um, but the model can be applied to families. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would agree. I mean, I've, I've said this before for me, back to that identity piece, especially when my kids were were younger, you know, my my wife and I were were both working, and there were a few years there where she was still working away from home, and I was working from home with a bit more of a flexible schedule. So just kind of logistically, that put me into a, a parenting role that I hadn't 
hadn't imagined, you know, mm-hmm. growing up like, and that was really hard for me identity wise, mm-hmm. really, really tough. Yeah. That's because a lot of times in society, the females are the primary mm-hmm. caretaker. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, you know, and I, I just say that's just in case there's any other moms or dads or whoever out there, but I, you know, I'd be at the park in Evergreen, Colorado, where we used to live. And, and it, you know, this is a, it's an affluent place. And the typical model there was dad's at work all day. And, you know, here's, here's mom with the little kids. And it was me and my little kids and all the moms and their little kids. And they, they were nice people. And, you know, we would talk and interact at times, but very often I was the only adult male there. And, and that felt challenging and isolating. And, and one of the stories that came up for me was like, well, at least I'm a sponsored athlete, you know, mm-hmm. at least I'm a pro athlete and oh. I'm going for these races and training hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is that a good story, a bad story? Who knows? You know, maybe, maybe it was just kind of a, a rescue story for some period of time there. Well, it sounds like something you drew confidence from. Yeah, I did. Yep. And, and looking back now, I can also see like, okay, this was a hard, having little kids is an intense time, no matter who you are and what you're doing, right? One parent goes to work all day and they come home and they're hassled from work. And, you know, boy, if I had just been home all day with the kids, like that would have been easy. And and then like the parent who is with the kids is like, are you kidding me? If I could have just gone to work and all like <laughs> talk to adults and, you know, like that would have been yeah. so damn easy compared to what I did. <laughs> So I've sort of taken us into the weeds, but I want to go back to talking about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. I was actually on a podcast recently talking about this and mm-hmm. talking about self-determination theory, which you did talk about in your book mm-hmm. and you know, those listening, autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And we don't want to spend the whole podcast going too much into that. But in the research I was reading, I did read that it is appropriate to use extrinsic motivation instead of focusing on intrinsic motivation in certain circumstances. Mm. And in other circumstances, it's actually inappropriate to offer some sort of reward for something when somebody's already intrinsically motivated for it. So in your book, you mm-hmm. give you give actually some really good examples based on what I had learned from that um, that study I read. You gave some good yeah. examples of, you know, when is an appropriate time to use extrinsic motivation to help you on towards your long term goal. So can you give a couple mm-hmm. examples? Sonia, maybe you should. I can't. So what, even one is like getting, I can't remember what my yeah. examples were. But what? So did, what well, one <laughs> what one, one of the think? examples yeah. is like you know getting out of bed because you have to train and you really don't want to get out of bed to train. So like, how can you use extrinsic motivation in that moment to get out of bed to train? I mean, that one could be as simple as, especially for like an experienced athlete, you know, I kind of feel like shit and I'm dragging right now, but I bet I'll feel better after I exercise. You know, Mm -hmm. that's, I tell myself that story almost every day and it's usually (laughs) true. (laughs) And, And in some ways that's, I think that's a good example of if you can create, you know, a positive cycle between the intrinsic and extrinsic where they play off each other mm-hmm. in a nice way. I, I think that's good. And and I do, th- I'm glad that you mentioned that idea about, you know, if something is intrinsically enjoyable, we can go too far with the extrinsic so that it's no longer enjoyable. And, and you can see that a lot with uh, kids sports, for example, you know, where things have just gone too far out of control and here's this kid who loves this sport, but then, you know, the parents pushing too far or, 
or maybe the kid or the kid or the coach or the community or just the culture. And it becomes about making the travel team or, you know, the letter or the college scholarship or I know I've experienced that as, um, especially as a sponsored runner where here's, I love running. I've always loved running. I still love it. And there, there was a point where it became, oh, it's, you know, the sponsorships or whatever are are really focused on uh, performances and bonuses and stuff like that. And that's, you know, it's not a bad thing. Like we all have to make money, but I, I realized that for me, it had taken something that's, you know, something I love and pushed it beyond too much time in the extrinsic or achievement oriented category. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm also thinking my mind, it's like kind of mental gymnastics a little bit, but whenever you are putting your own pressure on yourself, like for people listening that don't have sponsors, maybe they're not getting any money, but they're putting lots of pressure on themselves to go out the door and to perform a certain way or to feel a certain way. And that pressure becomes almost this extrinsic thing where now you're not doing it for the sake of the activity itself. You're doing it because for whatever reason that you've put this pressure on, whatever this means, it, yep. it, it means this, if I am this on my bike or this on my run, yep. and then it's not fun anymore. And I do that to myself all the time. Yeah. And something yep. I've been working on is t- telling myself like, this is supposed to be fun. Like if mm-hmm. I'm not having fun, I need to be thinking about why I'm not having fun and what yep. pressure I'm putting on myself to make this not fun anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I like that, Sonia. And I, I think, uh, you know, as as a coach of endurance athletes, I often <laughs> find myself reminding people like, you know, that we're talking on the phone and they're, you know, oh man, my run was so bad. And then it spirals into the worry about this or the injury or the, you know, whatever. And mm-hmm. like, I'm, I often find myself saying like, it was just a bad run. Like that's, <laughs> you want to know how many bad runs I've had or how many bad, like just thousands. It's just... Of, of course, we do want to avoid overtraining and, you know, underfeeling or mm-hmm. whatever, but sometimes bad days just happen. And mm-hmm. I find myself when I get home from my own bad run or bad ride or God, my energy's lower. I'm getting old or I'm getting slower. Like, you know, what the hell? And and mm-hmm. I've, you know, when I can step back and realize like, uh, dude, it was just like a bad day or, or maybe you are a little tired, take the day off tomorrow and you'll probably feel good the next day. <laughs> Yeah, like in your book, you talk about rec- you know recognizing when you have negative stories and how mm-hmm. to address those, and also something to put a word to it. It's it's we all catastrophize, mm-hmm. and I yep. ca- I realize that I do this a lot with lots of different things, but yep. like we'll say like your example of oh you know this person had a bad run and now they're thinking you know worst case scenario this that and yeah and it's yep. recognizing that negative story what what was the mental tool that you use for people who are recognizing these negative stories uh or like what do you do when you recognize that you're in this negative yeah loop? yeah i mean that is back to the the ultra mindset there was a chapter i think it's good good stories bad stories the ones we tell ourselves make all the difference and i mm-hmm. do provide in there kind of one idea of a framework for for rewriting stories and in a good first piece, I think, is just to realize a lot of the things that we think are stories. So if we can kind of tell ourselves, well, maybe I don't have to believe everything I think, or maybe in the in the language of the, uh, you know, the IFS, the internal family systems, you know, it might be something like, okay, if I'm sitting here, you know, as myself, and I can see, well, here's an anxious part of me that maybe is telling these stories, or here is mm-hmm. a uh, protector or manager part of me that's telling these these other stories. So in any of those models, the, the first step is you're kind of 
gaining some separation, I think, from the stories that are going through your head. And then from there, how do you how do you rewrite them? You know, different things work at different times, different mm-hmm. strategies have shelf lives. And also like, it's a, it's a journey, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I do at times find myself stuck in a, a cycle of, of rumination or catastrophizing um, where, boy, these things really do feel real. Mm-hmm. And sometimes maybe there is a, a simple, you know, psychology trick or component that, that, is going to help. Maybe it's talking to someone, maybe it's, uh, you know, professional therapy that of course can be really great. And maybe there is, you know, maybe there's a chemical or physical piece to it, you know, where, uh, whether that's exercise or being outside or you know, exchanging some love with another person or your dog, you know, <laughs> give, give your dog a hug, take your dog a walk, like use these strategies that'll, that'll, uh, put yourself in a, in a different mindset. Yeah, I love what you said about the psychological distancing piece of even naming the different parts. I think you said it came from that book that you were just reading, right? Mm-hmm. The IFS. Yep. The, yeah, like recognizing there's different voices and that all of those voices are not you. Those are yes. just parts of you. And then asking, yep. is this true? Is this actually 100% true? Yeah. Yeah. And and often, you know, rarely is something the actual truth. Mm-hmm. You know, again, that model would encourage us when when we can find this place of self, you know, here's what's true for me right now, or here's what I'm really seeking to move towards. A big goal um, for myself in the future, and that has been a goal that I just haven't executed on um, for a number of reasons, is mm-hmm. is writing books. Like I really am passionate and there's so many different things that I want to write about. And one of the fears that I have had over the years that has stopped me from doing mm-hmm. it is, well, I'm, I'm just going to keep learning more stuff. That way, you know, I, I don't want to write it now because I'm just going to know even more. And then what yep. I wrote, like, I, I'm just going to know more. And then what I wrote before isn't going to be good enough. Uh, and I, I'm sure that every writer, everyone who's ever thought about writing a book or has written a book has had these thoughts. So I just yep. wanted to ask you, you know, you wrote this book in 2015, which is so awesome. And I feel like even early to the table on a lot of these topics that are now very mainstream. So no, what thanks. would you what would you want to add? If you were to like rewrite that book today, mm. what would you add to the book? Yeah, great question. First off, Sonia, anyone who listens to this podcast or follows your stuff knows that you absolutely have many good books in you. <laughs> and if that's something you want to pursue, I think you should. And I would also say, take it step by step, you know, decide on here is this topic I want to write about now. And don't worry, it doesn't have to be the answer to everything or everything I've ever learned, right? You know, you mm-hmm. take on what you have and and also working with a team, working with a publisher, they do a great job of, well, the book has this many words in it. So you're going to have to you know, <laughs> cut the chapters like the, the ultra mindset book, you know, I had 13 principles and they, and they, they oh. said, well, the book has to be, you know, it has to be like multiples of eight. What was it? 256 pages. Like, and, been so and they hard said, well, to... that means eight mm-hmm. chapters. I'm like, eight. Hey, what do you mean? Like this is like, <laughs> deciding which, which of my kids I love the most. So anyway, back to the point, you know, what would be different? I've kind of realized that anything we put out there, a book, a podcast, a writing, you know, a, a business presentation, it's also a reflection and a snapshot of where we are at a given point in life. So mm-hmm. I look at this and I'm like, yeah, you know, okay, it came out seven years ago. I was writing it, you know, more eight or nine years ago. And like, mm-hmm. my life is 
somewhat the same, but there are also big changes and, and I'm mm-hmm. older and, you know, my kids are no longer little kids. Now they're bigger mm-hmm. kids. And so, and I live a, in a different town. So yeah, there's a lot that's, that's different. Most of it I still agree with and, you know, would still say, uh, you know, yes, this is, these are my thoughts on these concepts. Mm-hmm. The one, one tangible point that I may edit a bit, there's a, 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 chapter called the 4:30 a.m. rule mm-hmm. and it's kind of the idea that when you commit to something ahead of time you're you're not waiting to see how you feel at the moment so the the 4:30 a.m. it was could be literal could be metaphorical but it's like oh you're going to train early in the morning you're setting your alarm for 4:30 a.m. and it's you're not saying i'm going to see how i feel at 4:30 a.m. and then decide if i want to get up and go out and <laughs> you know run or ski in the cold right cuz no one wants to no one ever wants yeah. to <laughs> yeah no one i i don't yeah so i still i still like that principle i might present it differently after what i've learned about sleep regarding mm-hmm. my dad's Alzheimer's journey and just, you know, sleep in, mm-hmm. in general, you know, Matthew Walker's why we sleep. I mean, I, I don't know when that came out, but it was after 2015. Yeah. So we've, we've learned a lot. And for me personally, probably the biggest change I've made is since my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's is my own sleep habits. Um, and, and I wasn't like staying up all night or anything like that, but I've really just taken to heart consistent sleep and and wake times and good sleep hygiene as as much as I can. And and am I always perfect? No. Do I still get up sometimes early for a mission or a race because that's when I have to get up for it? Yes. But I think a lot more about it and I try to be a lot more creative to avoid kind of those super early times if I can. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially uh, now that your kids are older too. <laughs> Hopefully, they're not mm-hmm. getting up super early. <laughs> no, no, the kids are not. They're they're kind of they're easing it. They you know they're almost getting to that teenage stage of wanting yeah. to sleep in, which is great. I mean, we now know that developmentally, you know, previously the story would have been like, oh, you're a lazy teenager, like get mm-hmm. your ass out of bed, and and now we know like. Mm-hmm the developmental course is for the brain to want to stay up later at night and then to sleep in till mm-hmm. 10 or noon or whatever. And so I say support that if we can. So in the last couple minutes, I actually wanted to ask you about different sports. So, you know, you're very proficient and awesome at lots of different sports. And for me, I'm, I'm very much a solo or I've been a very much a solo sport athlete. Mountain biking has been a solo focus for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And focusing on the fun, I'm trying to create flexibility in my mind to diversify a little bit. So I signed up for like a 50k trail running race, and you know maybe I want to do some skiing, you know, things like that. And and I'm sure people listening that are very you know single goal focused are afraid in similar ways that I am. So like for you, how did you manage doing all of these different sports at a high level and have the mental flexibility to you know not singularly train one of them? Mm. Well, I think a good first step, you know, if someone's thinking about a new sport is just grasping that beginner mindset. And for me, again, what's great is that's fun. Mm -hmm. You get to learn, uh, you get to learn something as an adult, which is different from learning it as, as a kid and you get to have fast progress. And so that's all fun. You know, that's a, I think that's a good reason, you know, as far as maintaining it, I I mean, it's just kind of, you know, the, um, people get good at stuff because they spend a lot of time on it is mm-hmm. kind of what it comes down to. So <laughs> consistently doing something over time, you know, like now when it, when it comes to paddling, like I, I'm not a fantastic 
paddler by any you know professional means or anything but when it comes to like the adventure racing world i can paddle good enough um Mm -hmm. when i first started adventure racing when i was 20 i was terrible and i couldn't keep a boat going straight and like you know my form was horrible and i just put time into it and i i went to New Zealand for almost a year and I tracked down the best Kiwi paddlers and, you know, got them to take me out paddling. And so I I got better, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so that's just, it's just, you know, in cycling, we say time in the saddle. So it's time Mm -hmm. in the boat, time in the shoes, Mm -hmm. time in the, in the skis or, or whatever. And then also realizing I think if you want to be a multi-sport athlete, there, there is, especially if you're balancing with parenting or work or whatever, there's a give and take, you know, mm-hmm. if your goal is to be the best possible runner, you know, you probably really need to focus on running for, for a lot of the year. But if, if you can say, oh, my goal is to, you know, simultaneously be kind of good or good enough for a multi-sport race, you could in the given week, I mean, I love in the winter, like in any given week, I'll probably go biking, running and skiing, you know, maybe each of those a couple times throughout the mm-hmm. week. And like, for me, that's just fun. And, and mm-hmm. also like you get injured less because there's not as much overuse. Uh, it's that's, that's kind of how I like to do things. Yeah. That comes all the way back to defining success in terms of impact and experience. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Sure. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find your podcast and your coaching and your books? Yeah. Thanks, Sonia. I really appreciate it. All of that is at travismacy.com. Instagram, I'm, like I said, it's not exactly my thing, but I kind of do it. That's at Travis Macy. And the uh, the books are on, you mentioned the Ultra Mindset, the new one's called A Mile at a Time. So that's up for pre-order now. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, independent bookstores, uh, et cetera. And it'll be on shelves in March. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll record a podcast about that and I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Sure. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Travis. He has a wealth of knowledge and he will be back on this show. We also became fast friends after recording this episode. Let us know what your takeaways are. Take a screenshot and share the show on social media or text a friend and tell them about the show. Another way you can help the show find others is to leave us a review and to hit that subscribe buttons because that tells Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts that this is a valuable show and that others want to find it too. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week.